Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on, my man? I'm doing absolutely wonderful, and um, that is because I just received an email with some flight information for you. So we are going to be getting together in person for the first time in a long time, uh, in just a couple of days now. So I'm doing good. You're probably doing terrible because of the same news. <laughs> Watch out, world. We're going to be back in the same room together, which, you know, at different points has has created a book, right? We, we uh, wrote The Passion Paradox, essentially, or created the idea behind it when we were stuck in the same room for a couple of days. Um, and it's also led to some horrible experiences of trying to figure out how to use outside Instagram when we had no idea back back in the day. The so. ultimate Brad and Steve experience that um, you know, I'm just gonna just gonna go. Hopefully, the feds aren't listening. Oh God! You yeah, here go we go. There. So this was post launch of the Passion Paradox. And Steve came out to California where marijuana is legal. And we indulged in some marijuana. And we then went to a pizza place. And Steve and I were both struggling to hold it together. Uh, This was not a peak performance moment. (laughs) And as you can imagine, neither Steve nor I smoke very often. Um, That is THC. Cigarettes, very bad. Cause lung cancer. If you are smoking, please get help. Try to quit. There's good resources. But we indulge in THC. Edibles, a joint once in a while. But we're not frequent users. So it's a jolt to the system, for sure. And we were both jolted. And I distinctly remember struggling to place an order for pizza just without losing my mind laughing because Steve's high. And I remember Steve telling both me and the waiter that it's like being at mile 18 of a marathon. You just got to like put one foot of the other and focus on the present moment. And right now, that present moment is I got to keep it together and tell you I want a cheese pizza. And then I got to get to mile 20 when I'm going to tell you I need a refill on my water. And um, that also happened when when we were together. And then we saw a dog that we thought was a wolf and turned out to be an Alaskan Malamute, which is the dog that is closest to a wolf. So we were right about that. All right. So I'm not sure if we we lost audience, gained audience. Maybe this is our big moment. Maybe this is the uh, the moment we disappoint all of our uh, hardcore conservative fans or or family. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I would just like to point out that even in a moment where our minds are afray, I was I was able to pull out that wisdom, man. Just, he was focusing on peak performance. The peak performance, the marathon always. metaphor works for everything, and Steve will pull it out of his back pocket in all situations. That's right. Always know what you're good at. That's it. So speaking about when your mind is going afray, that is what we've got a topic that's going to cover that a little bit. But before we jump into that, how in the world? I don't know how to transition to this, so I'm just going to say it. 
You know, the best thing that we can do and the reason, you know, getting together is important because it keeps you grounded. And you know what? The practice of groundedness, Brad's new book is almost, almost at the finish line, right? It's almost going to be out in your hands. We're at like mile 25 struggling, but about to get to that moment of jubilation when we hit our goal and the book comes out and you get to read the wonderful knowledge. All seriousness, it's a fantastic book. It will you know, change your outlook on life and give you the tools in order to not only perform, but also live a happy, meaningful, grounded life. So check that out. Yeah. Pre-order the book. Um, you can do that at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. And as Steve said, we are going to talk about our minds going afray in a very positive way. So I will tee this topic up. We like to think of the brain as being the source of our personhood, of our ego, of our identity, of our ideas. And in doing so, we think about it as this organ that is contained in our skull. But the mind is broader than the brain. The mind is everything that goes into the brain that works in concert with the brain to produce personhood, ideas, successes, and failures. So we have read a really good book called The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul. And um, it explores this concept of what she calls, per the title of the book, The Extended Mind. So we figured we'd talk about it because it's a really good topic. It's something that Steve studied extensively in graduate school under the academic name of affordances. And it's something that affects everyone, whether you are thinking about this in a mental health, I'm depressed, I'm anxious context, in a performance context, or just in a how do I live a good life context. So the last thing that I'll say to get out of um, conceptual terms and make this real is the brain-based model says that the best way to write a good book is to think really hard using your brain. The mind-based model says the best way to write a good book is to talk to lots of interesting people, go on hikes in nature, read lots of books, listen to music, and have all of these inputs that then produce an output of a work of literature. And we are both believers in the mind-based model, and um, that's what we want to talk about today. All right. Love it. So... Let's dive in. I'll set the stage on some of the science by, you know, using my memory, pressing it, seeing what I can recall from uh, grad school days and talk about, as you suggested, the science of affordances. And I think this is a really good example that will hopefully tee us up for exploring ways we can use this this model or this idea of the extended mind instead of the, the kind of brain dominated one that we have. Um, and it, it basically, when we look at affordances, it basically says your environment around you matters a whole heck of a lot, and it invites actions, okay? So the, the best example I can give is if you walk up to a door, right? If it has a certain kind of handle, what are you going to do? You're going to pull it. If it has a different kind of handle, maybe a flat, you know, area, you're going to push it. 
And you intuitively like have that action without consciously thinking about those things. Why? Because the cues you're getting from the environment invite certain actions, right? And sometimes this is messed up in arch- architecture, right? We've all probably been in those situations where you walk up to a door and it has a handle that is like, oh, this is one you pull. And you go up and you pull it and you're like, oh, man, I was supposed to push that. Like, why do you do that? Because the way your mind kind of works is it takes in the opportunities and the environment around you. Now, what does this mean specifically for, you know, you and us as, as human beings and performers? It means that the environment we live in, the environment we occupy, and when I say environment, I don't just mean like the things and objects in it, but also the people, the place, the scenery, the surrounding, all of those things can invite or allow different opportunities for action. So if I'm sitting at my desk and there is a computer in front of me, I'm going to be drawn to that. And the last example I'll give that I think really drives this home before turning it back over, Brad, is is if you look at the way most uh, houses, especially in America, are kind of designed and laid out, the center of the home is the living room with a couch with a TV right in front of it. And that invites the action, and that's why we have this propensity to go sit on the couch, flick on the TV, and ignore maybe the more, we'll call them, nutritious options that are available but aren't as inviting by the environment around us. Yeah, and I think that you see that a lot in um, the difference between that house versus a complementary house, that everything is the same, but instead of that TV, there's a coffee table um, with a tumbler of bourbon or iced tea and books all over. And I think in the one case, you're more likely to turn on the TV. In the other case, you're more likely to have a conversation. So I probably should talk to Caitlin about moving our TV, um, but I will do that later. Uh, it's a good summary. So what does it mean? I think the first thing that it means is that we have to think about setting ourselves up to do well as our brain in harmony with our surroundings. Um, The very simple example of this is if you have peanut M&Ms in a bowl on your counter, you're going to eat peanut M&Ms. But your brain can say, hey, wait a minute, I know I'm going to do that. So when I go to the grocery store, I'm not going to buy the peanut M&Ms. And we can use that as a metaphor for so many different activities in our life. So there's a very clear physical environment, Steve alluded to this a couple of times, that our surroundings really shape the behaviors that we want. And it is easier to make smart and wise wise decisions and wise choices upstream of the actual behavior. So in the moment you want to do something, it's very hard to fight temptations to do the easier thing. But if you can get upstream, use your rational brain in concert with your environment, which becomes your mind, you can design things conducive to what you want to accomplish. To me, that's like extended mind thinking 101. I think level 201, 301, and 401 is how everything you do in your life is grist for the mill of your personhood. So the people that you surround yourself with, the activities that you participate in, 
particularly today with so much content available, where you go to consume information. These are not things that are separate from you. They are you. They become you. Um, and I think that it really begs the question, how can we be more intentional about who we become? Who do we follow on Twitter? Who do you make plans with? Who do you fly out for their book launch? Um, what, like, you know, on and on, what activities do you, do you engage in? So um, I think it's really important. And I'll give like another very concrete example here is it has me thinking a lot about my physical practice. So we know that moving your body is very good for your mind. That is um, unequivocal and that is in all the science and all the ancient wisdom and all the actual real world practice. So that's the start. But the second part that I've been thinking more about is different ways of moving one's body can have very different impacts on one's mind. So if I want to be really calm and confident and just feel good in my body the rest of the day, I'm going to do a harder strength training workout. If I want to have creative thoughts and prime myself to do deep thinking, I'm going to go on a walk on the woods. And I might listen to a particular kind of music during that walk. If I want to um, read and be able to fully engage in a book, I'm going to go on a short walk and then have a cup of coffee. These aren't universal. That's what works for me. Everyone's wiring is going to be a little bit different. But the point is, I am thinking about the event of feeling calm and confident, deeply engaging in a book or writing is much more than just sitting down to do the thing. I'm thinking about it in terms of what I do before. Um, so maybe another way to think about this is if you define the priority activities in your life, your craft, your relationships, um, your hobbies, whatever they are, it's really helpful then to say, well, how do I build my, my extended mind around those things so that I can do best and feel best in those things? Yeah, those are some really good examples, Brad. And I think one of the themes that you got out, you got there was the intentionality of it, of being intentional on how you're crafting, we'll call it your mind, your environment, the people around you, the information you're consuming uh, versus the other side of it, which I think occurs a lot of times, which is just defaulting to this passive consumption, right? And when you're not intentional and you default to the passive, your mind, your world gets constructed for you instead of you being the person in charge of like constructing it and developing it, right? And I think we see this especially on social media or, you know, anywhere like that um, because what you consume kind of shapes who you are. And one of the really good examples of that, and one of the things that I think people struggle to wrestle with, especially, you know, in today's kind of modern landscape, is we have this idea that, you know, we join groups or join tribes or support teams or whatever have you uh, that share our beliefs. And it's those beliefs that, dri that drive that behavior. But what researchers have actually found is it's not your like moral view or beliefs that determine, determine which group you belong to. It's the other way around. Your tribe, whatever group you 
you're a part of does more to determine your morality than your morality does to to determine your tribe, right? Um, Which I think is so interesting because it's like counterintuitive to what we think, but we literally shift our beliefs based on the landscape of people around us or the tribe that we belong to in order to like match what they say and our kind of current reality. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the implication for this is pretty enormous, particularly as you think about how to design workplaces and schools and locker rooms. And um, I'm sure I'm missing some physical spaces, but where we normally think of individuals with their own brain and their own set of habits and patterns and ethics. And we don't think about the interactions between those individuals or the other things that they're doing. So in school, you've got a bunch of kids sitting at desks told to be still all day, which is completely unnatural for kids. And we think that if they're moving around more or they're in conversation more, that we're doing their brain a disservice when we're doing their mind a real service. Um, So I think that just shifting from this brain locked up in the skull determines who you are and what you do to the mind, which is far beyond your skull determining who you are and what you do, really has pretty dramatic influences on how we design our days in in all kinds of different realms. So... Let me jump in there since you brought up schools, which I think is a great example because you and I grew up in the, definitely grew up in the era where you sat there all day and stared at a screen or stared at, you know, the chalkboard and and sat there, right? And in elementary school, we were lucky to have one recess, right? And that was like your escape where you're just like, oh, I get to go, you know, play kickball or whatever. And it's it's interesting thinking back about that time because it seemed like, oh man, that was such a highlight and that took so long. And it was like 15 minutes of play <laughs> through a like eight hour day. So it's kind of crazy. But let me tell you what innovative teachers, especially on the elementary school teachers are doing now is there's been a push to have multiple recesses, right? So two recesses in a day been a very hard push, but you're starting to see it in in some campuses. But more so, and I think this is innovative and important and something that I learned from my wife, who is a uh, elementary school teacher, is there is that most campuses now are starting to institute, at least at the younger level, what they call brain breaks, right? Which are essentially, you know, a couple minute breaks where they will, you know, throw on a song and have like a, you know, four minute dance party in the, in the, in the classroom or some other activity where they get up and jump around and move around a little bit before going back to, back to work. And when I, when I first heard about that, I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like that's how the, that's how the mind works, right? It isn't this this brain that just, oh, I'm going to shove a bunch of information in there and keep shoving and keep shoving like we are physical beings who need like to move to to learn as well. 
I think the other area where this is um, really important is in thinking about handling stress in distress. Um, I'm thinking about another book, which is called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it is a book that has been on the New York Times bestseller list for, I don't know, the last five years. Uh, I always forget the name of the researcher that wrote this book, uh, Bessel van der Molk. And it is a theory of trauma and PTSD that says that we only think about the brain, but actually the trauma and angst and stress is often held in the body. And he is a physician researcher. This is not like a, a woo-woo. We need to just light incense and release the spirit. Um, this is about the nervous system, which we think of as separate than the brain, actually being a part of the mind and how so many of the therapies that have underdelivered on things like PTSD only attack the brain. So um, it's the medication-based model. And to a large extent, it's talk therapy. And while these things can be effective, they're often more effective when combined with changes in the physical environment, in one's surroundings, with physical activity, with dance, and with support groups. So what are all those other things? It's community. It's moving your body. And sometimes it's jolting your whole nervous system into a completely new environment. Um, you also see this in recovery from addiction. One of the best ways to... Um, help overcome like very calcitrant addiction is to have somebody move to a new setting. And if addiction was only in the brain, that would have no impact because you're taking your brain with you. But the more that we can think about the mind as a part of these patterns, the more opportunity and more degrees of freedom we have to work with them to change them. Yeah. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up that book because it is a, you know, from what I've talked about, like a foundational piece or movement in, uh, in therapy that kind of shifted a lot of models. So uh, a really good book. Um, have you read that book, Steve? Yes, yeah. I have. He's one a smart of, dude. Yeah. One of my good friends, a uh, social worker recommended it several years ago. So, um, it's fascinating, but I, I, you know, the example that you gave there of like moving to a new environment to help cure addiction, um, is a perfect example of the complexity between this stuff, right? And the other part of it is, I forget the researchers who've done the bulk of this work, but we tend to isolate things, right? We tend to see it as like, oh, this is the brain. These are the neurochemicals, like learning occurs through this. But there's been a movement in kind of the motor control neuroscience world that shows that like moving is a integral part of learning, right? And if we can, like, you can literally enhance your learning on, on most subjects by involving movements either before, after, during, I forget the exact science. And the theory goes basically like this, is that, you know, one of the first primary drivers for brain development learning growth was the ability to move and then move in different directions for different long periods of times and then you know use your hands for tools which is movement etc so movement is like a very uh powerful driver 
which again, like breaks down some of these walls where we separate things into distinct categories, which sometimes does us a disservice. Yeah. And, and there is such a non-dual nature to this, like so many of the things that you and I talk about on this podcast. And if one extreme is everything is in your skull, then the other extreme is the butterfly effect in everything is always changing in there is no like personhood. And if everything is affecting my mind, then I have no control over it. And I think that neither of those extremes are the right models. I think that it's about finding a middle ground. And perhaps what we're saying is that here in the West, we've been favoring or too far tilted toward the brain-based model, and it can be effective to shift more in the direction of um, a mind that lives outside of just the skull. Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair summary. And I think you're right. I mean, it's like anything, you know, one of the main theories or one of the main kind of commonalities that we talk about a lot here on the growth equation is we tend to bounce back and forth or swing back and forth on a pendulum between uh, various extremes, you know, and this is just one of those where it's the Western model developed in this manner, which means we neglected some things on the other side and we're hopefully swinging back in that direction and hopefully don't swing all the way too far where we say, oh, the brain doesn't matter. There's nothing, you know, so it's it's just finding that that sweet spot. Cool. Well, unless you've got more to add on this topic, I don't think we need to belabor it. I think that we've fleshed out a really important concept that hopefully helps listeners um, ready for this pun, think more broadly about their brain. <laughs> so I, yes, that was, that was great, Brad. I'm sure, I'm sure the listeners will love that pun. Um, the only thing I'd add is, okay, you heard Brad and I go on and on about, you know, mind, brain. How do you put this into action? It's, it's very simple, right? Be deliberate and intentional on the environment you are creating, right? If you have a space, you know, we talk about this in peak performance. If you have a space and you want to write in it or work on it, make that an environment where you write and work in. Don't have other things that, you know, you don't need in it, right? So things like that, be intentional on who you follow on Twitter and social media, if that's giving you angst or if what have you. Be intentional to expose yourself to ideas outside of your norm or your tribe so that you don't get so locked in on, you know, whatever group you you belong to. Um, incorporate exercise and movement into your daily routine into your learning right you know um i didn't mention earlier but again a lot of the research shows exercise helps learning because exercise or just moving in general uh gives off bdnf brain derived neurotropic factor which helps get you know the brain growing learning etc so it's it's kind of being intentional on what you're crafting, what you're developing, and don't let the don't become like this passive consumer of the world, which means you are handing over your kind of mind for others to craft and develop 
however they may choose to. Yeah, get upstream of the thing is just another way to think about it. Um, so if the thing is writing or athletics or a relationship or falling asleep or anxiety or elation, um, think about what happens before that. Think about what happens after that. Think about people, place, and objects. Um, and the thinking happens in your brain. All that stuff is outside of your brain. You combine the two, you get the mind. Um, so I think that that's a, a good place to leave everyone. We will be back next week. Um, I think we'll be talking about the practice of groundedness. Hopefully you will have already received the book on your doorstep and, um, yeah, check it out and we'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to the growth equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.